as the kids make their way to their classes. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles available out in the lobby. They're yours to use. If you don't have one at home, they're yours to keep. It would be a, a gift from us to you. Couldn't think of a better gift than God's Word. Isaiah chapter 6. I've been looking forward to preaching this chapter ever since I decided to preach through the book of Isaiah. It's one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible, and it is an incredible passage. Um, it's, to be honest, it's one of the reasons I chose to preach through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 is an incredible vision that God gives to the prophet Isaiah. And it's a vision that sticks with him for the rest of his life. It's a, it's a vision that he holds on to, that he never forgets, one that will flavor his teaching and fuel his preaching for the next 40 years of his life. What Isaiah sees here is a vision of the throne room of God himself. And it is his commissioning. The first five chapters were really a preface to the book. Some introductory prophecies that give us a flavor of the rest of the book. But what we have here is the beginning. This is the beginning of his prophesying to the nation of Judah. So let's read Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their eyes heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray. 
Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the privilege of gathering together as a faith family to worship you, to celebrate your kindness to these families, the gift of life of these children, the gift of life to this church. Father, now we turn to your word, and we ask that you would help us to remain in a state of worship, in a spirit of worship, for we sit under this word. This word is over us. And we are seeking to learn from you. And so, God, would you be so kind as to give to us your spirit as we seek to understand this, not just so that we would understand what it means and learn how to interpret it, but, Lord, so that you might change us, so that we might be transformed by your grace for your glory, to look a little bit more like your son Jesus, so that you might be glorified in and through us. We ask that you do that work. Even now, pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 6, no wonder the commentators call this the fifth gospel, because that's what we find here, the good news. This is a story of God giving Isaiah a vision of the throne room of heaven, By the way, just as he did to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos, which is why much of what we see here in Isaiah 6 is mirrored by the passage that we read from Revelation 4 earlier, including things like the throne itself, the one who sits on the throne, the the heavenly creatures with six wings, and the song that they sing. And like Revelation, this passage is very poetic, and figurative, but it's teaching us something. It's teaching us something about God, it's teaching us something about man, and it's teaching us something about the gospel. So this vision can be broken into two clear sections. In verses 1 through 7, we have the throne room vision, and then in verses 8 through 13, we have Isaiah's commissioning, where he begins his public preaching ministry. But here's where we're going with this passage this morning. I want to go ahead and give you the the whole outline up front and just keep it on the screen the entire time today because this is what Isaiah 6 is all about. When we behold the holiness and glory of our King Jesus, because that's what's happening here in this passage, he is beholding the holiness and glory of God. And when we do that, we will be encouraged in times of uncertainty. We will be undone, as Isaiah is, undone because of his own sin and unholiness. That's what we will be. And we'll be led to confess and repent of our sins. We will be reminded of the grace that is found at the altar of Calvary. And we will be compelled to pick up the mantle of the commission that God has given to us just as he gave a mantle of commission to Isaiah in his day. And so we'll be encouraged, we're going to be undone, we'll be reminded of God's grace, and we will be sent if we behold the holiness and glory of God. So that's what we're going to see here. So let's dive into the vision itself in verse 1. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, Now, that's going to locate this vision on the timeline of redemptive history. So this vision is given to Isaiah 
at the end of the reign of Uzziah, king of Judah. Now the scriptures will tell us that Uzziah was a good king. He came to reign when he was only 16 years old. He reigned over the southern kingdom of Judah. And he reigned for 52 years. And he was a very good king. The scriptures tell us that he followed in the ways of his father, King Amaziah. And and his father was a good king. The scriptures tell us that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And as such, the southern kingdom of Judah prospered greatly under his reign for those 52 years. His reign marked what was somewhat of a golden age for the southern kingdom of Judah. A time of prosperity and a time of peace for Judah. However, tragically there is a however here. At the end of his life, Uzziah's great strength turned to pride. And his pride led to his destruction. 2 Chronicles chapter 26 tells the tragic story of how Uzziah as a king, he entered into the temple in order to burn incense at the altar of God. And that was a huge violation of God's commands. God by design had said that only the priests of Aaron from the tribe of Levi could burn the incense at the altar. Not only could no one else do it, certainly a king was not allowed to do this. But Uzziah, because he had grown prideful in his life, he entered the temple, he approached the altar, and he grabbed the censer in order to burn the incense. And the priests noticed what he was doing, and they confronted him. King, no, you are not to do this. This is not pleasing to God. This is only for the priests. But Uzziah responded to the priests in anger. And in that moment, the Lord struck Uzziah with leprosy. He was escorted out of the temple, and he lived the remainder of his days in isolation. A tragic ending to an otherwise good story of a good man and king. A good and righteous leader had fallen in disgrace. And in many ways, what happened to Uzziah in his life is mirrored in large part by what happened to the nation as a whole. The golden age there in Judah, this age of prosperity and peace, had turned sour. Not only had Uzziah become prideful and selfish, but in large measure, the nation of Judah had as well. And not only had this good king fallen in disgrace, but now we're told that he had died. It was truly the end of an era for the southern kingdom of Judah. And to make matters worse, the sleeping giant to the north, the great Assyrian empire, was beginning to awaken. Their new king, Tiglath-Pileser III, had come to power himself in that nation, and that great empire had begun to set their sights on Syria and Palestine to the south. And so for Judah, the year that King Uzziah died was a year of great turmoil, uncertainty, and fear. 
And Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. You see, in the midst of turmoil and uncertainty and fear, Isaiah's countenance was turned toward heaven, and he was given a vision of another king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He saw the Lord sitting on a throne. The word for Lord there is not the personal name Yahweh for the Lord of Israel, but rather it is the Hebrew word Adonai, which means ruler or sovereign. And so Isaiah was not to put his hope in any earthly king, but rather in the sovereign ruler of the universe, the king that is above all kings, the Lord. And we're told that Isaiah sees him sitting on a throne that is high and lifted up. I don't know if you watch any of the coronation of Charles when he became king of England this past year, but when he sat on his throne, his throne was high and lifted up. It was higher than all of the other seats there in Westminster Abbey. That was meant to be symbolic, that he was the ruler, that he was the sovereign, and he had supreme authority over all of his subjects. And our God's throne is also high and lifted up, symbolizing his authority over all mankind and over all of creation. And we're told that the train of his robe or the the hem of his robe filled the temple. So the robe of the monarch had a train behind it, much like the train of the bride on her wedding day. Now, I'll just be honest with you. When I see that train, I, I, I don't think that there's any functional or practical reason for it. Like, why, why is there a train? The only purpose of the train is to give the maid of honor something to do, right? She, she gives her flowers to somebody else, and what does she do? She, she fluffs out the train, and she makes sure that the bride doesn't trip over the train. Because after all, uh, the bride is not supposed to move her train herself. And so the maid of honor attends to her. Well, the the purpose of a train at a wedding, on a wedding gown, is not functional or practical, but rather symbolic. The train tells everyone in the room that this is the most important person in the room, and that she is to be attended to at all costs, and she's not to attend to herself because she deserves that kind of attention. And this is why kings and queens have trains on their robe as well. It is symbolic. And and, and our king in heaven has a train as well. And we're told that his train is so long and so large that it fills the temple. Just imagine that. Imagine being Isaiah and seeing that. Every corner, every crevice of the temple was filled with the train of this robe. Imagine how great the robe itself must have been, much less the one who wore it. The picture that we're being given here is one of the transcendence of God. This one who's sitting on the throne, he's not like us. We're we're different from this one that's sitting on the throne. He is magnificent. He is above all. He is the supreme ruler. The sense of this transcendence 
is developed further by the seraphim that Isaiah describes next in verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. These are heavenly creatures whose only job is to attend to the king. They are standing at his side like servants ready to serve at the king's beck and call. And they have six wings, just like the heavenly creatures that we read about in Revelation uh, 4. With two of the wings, we're told that he covered his face because even this heavenly creature, even this seraphim, can't behold the full brightness of the glory of God. When someone shines a light in your face at night, your immediate reaction is to either look down or to cover your face. The same with these seraphim. With two of the wings, they, they cover their eyes from the resplendent brilliance of the glory of God. With two wings, they cover their feet. This is probably symbolic of their creatureliness. Like in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is before the burning bush, he's told to remove his sandals for the ground he's standing on is holy ground. The presence of Yahweh here makes this holy ground, and so they cover their feet. And And think about this. These seraphim are sinless creatures. They don't have a sin nature. They've been created by God for the sole purpose of attending to his needs in heaven. They don't have a sin nature. And so they are without sin. But even their sinlessness does not even begin to approach the holiness of this one on the throne. And so they cover their feet. And with two wings they fly. And they're singing a song to one another. Verse 3 tells us that the song is this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And so they're singing about God's holiness and God's glory. They sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now in English, when when we want to put emphasis on something, when we want to say something with intensity, We will use an exclamation mark at the end of the sentence, or we'll uh, put a highlighter over it, or we'll underline it, or we will put it in boldface font. Well, none of this was available to them in the ancient Hebrew language. They didn't have highlighters. They didn't have boldface font. They didn't have any fonts. They, they would never underline something because they, would, they wrote the Hebrew in, with dashes and dots, and so that would have messed everything up. And so the only way, they certainly didn't have exclamation marks, and so the only way in the Hebrew language for them to put intensity or draw emphasis on something is through repetition. Now, many times in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament, we see a doubling of intensity through repetition. But church, this is the only time, this is the only time in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament, where we see a tripling of intensity. And this tripling of intensity is reserved for the holiness of God. And so the seraphim are telling us in this heavenly song that, by the way, goes on and on and on and on throughout all of eternity which means they're singing it today. This song goes on and on telling us that this one who sits on the throne 
is the holiest of the holiest of the holy ones. In fact, commentator Alec Maltier notes that God's name is qualified by the adjective holy in the Old Testament more, more often than by all other qualities put together. Imagine that. So in the Old Testament, when we see the, the name of God and all of the adjectives that are used to describe him, the word holy is used more than all of them put together. The word holy actually means to be set apart. To be distinct. And what makes God set apart and distinct from everything else in creation, including us, is his moral purity and his righteous perfection. That more than anything else is what makes him not like us and us not like him. Again, even the sinless seraphim do not contain anything close to this holiness and righteous perfection, which is why they cover their feet. This one is like no other. He is holy, holy, holy. The song goes on to say that the whole earth is full of his glory. Just like the train of his robe fills the temple, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Every corner and every crevice of the entire earth is filled with the glory of God. The word glory means resplendent display or brightness. It is the sum total of all of the attributes of God put together and then put on display. The glory of God is the, the magnificence, the perfection, the righteousness, the goodness, the grace, and the love of God all rolled together and then made manifest. And when God's glory is made manifest, it is a brilliance that even heavenly creatures cannot behold in its full and live. It is a glory that even creation itself cannot contain in its full. And when these seraphims sing of the holiness and glory of God, we're told that the foundations of the threshold shake and the entire house is filled with smoke. What an incredible vision he has given. What an awe-inspiring vision he's given. And what a timely vision for both Isaiah and the people of Judah during this time. A good king had fallen in disgrace. And that king, that earthly king who had reigned over, over, over a period of prosperity and peace for 52 years was now gone. He's dead. The enemy of God's people at that time, the Assyrian army, was beginning to rouse from its sleep and was eyeing the northern and southern kingdom with imperial intentions. And so God's people were understandably scared, frightened, worried, concerned. What would happen next? What would become of God's people? And through the prophet, they are given this vision of the holy king of glory, seated on his throne. And through this vision, they're being reminded that he's still on his throne. His sovereignty is still intact. 
no matter what might be happening around you. He's not taken by surprise by the events of the day. He's still on his throne and he's still reigning over all. And this would have filled them with courage and hope and a greater faith in their God in the midst of what was happening around them. And church, we too, we need, to, we need to maintain a vision of our holy King of glory. We need to behold him in all of his beauty and glory for two reasons. First, because if all we behold is the hope that comes from man, the hope that comes from an earthly king, the hope that comes from politics or presidents or human governments, then we will be understandably fearful and anxious and uncertain about the future. World events will shake us to our core. And so we need to take our eyes off of earthly kings and rulers and put them on our heavenly king. He's still on his throne. He's still in control. He is still sovereign. He's reigning now from heaven. Even now. And the seraphim are singing that song. Even today. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. This is our king. Who reigns in unapproachable light. Whose holiness is beyond measure. And my question to you is. Do you see him? Do you behold him? Not just now, but tomorrow morning, midweek, when chaos surrounds you. Do you behold this king of glory? Church, what is it that blurs this vision for us? Why is this vision so difficult for us to keep at the very center of our mind's eye? Is it the cares of the world? Is it the sin around us? Is it the sin indwelling in us? Is it our proclivity to trust in our own strength, our own plans, our own wisdom? Is it our tendency to put our hope in presidents and politics and governments? Is that what keeps us from keeping this vision at the forefront of our minds? Is it because we don't saturate our lives with the scriptures because after all it is within the scriptures that we are given this vision if we didn't have the scriptures we wouldn't see this and we wouldn't know this church we need to see that our holy king of glory is still reigning that he's still sovereign not just back when isaiah saw this but right now at this very moment so that we will not lose hope in the here and now so that we will be encouraged and our faith will be built and we'll be filled with hope no matter the uncertain times that we find ourselves in. But the second reason why we need to behold this vision is because when we do, our sin and God's grace come into clearer focus. So what happens to Isaiah when he sees this? Verse 5, And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In chapter 5, last time we were together, we 
looked at several woes that Isaiah prophesied over the, the people of Judah. And we learned at that time, when we see the word woe, it is both a word of warning of coming judgment and a word of lament, grieving over the sin that this judgment is coming because of. So Isaiah sees the holiness and glory of God, and he responds, woe is me, I am lost. The New American Standard, the NIV, say here, I am ruined. Actually, like the King James, I am undone. The sentiment behind Isaiah's statement here is, I'm not like that. I behold this king in all of his resplendent glory and his righteous perfection and holiness. And I realize most fundamentally that is not me. In fact, that is so not me. I'm ruined. I'm undone before this holy king of glory. And he goes on to say, For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among the midst of a people of unclean lips. That's him confessing his sin before God. God, I am a sinner. And brother, sister, can I just suggest to you, to you that that is the most logical response to beholding our holy king of glory like Isaiah did. You see, one of the byproducts of us seeing a true view of God is that we're given the privilege of seeing a true view of ourselves in response to that. You know, as long as we're comparing ourselves to others, we can always find someone who's worse than we are, against whom we can look at ourselves and say, I'm a pretty good person. But here Isaiah is forced to stop comparing himself to others and he compares himself to the one on the throne. And he says, woe is me, I'm undone. You see, if we don't keep this vision of our holy king of glory at the forefront of our minds, then we're liable to get a wrong view of ourselves, a skewed view a view that elevates our goodness and glosses over our sin. But you know, nobody comes away from beholding what Isaiah saw, this holy king of glory in all of his majesty and holiness. Nobody beholds that and walks away saying, yeah, I match up pretty good. I'm not that bad of a person. I'm pretty good. No, we all walk away saying, woe is me, I am ruined. So Isaiah confesses his sins as a natural response to this. He confesses the sin of the people of Judah, and then what happens? Well, what happens next in this story is a beautiful foreshadowing of the gospel itself. Remember, the gospel is good news. And it's good news because it deals with the very bad news and the bad news is that we are all sinners and we've all fallen short of God's glory, Romans 3.23. And that we are hopeless in that condition. In that condition, we are undone. We are ruined 
That's the bad news. What's the good news? Verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, what precipitates the action of the seraphim in this story, what precipitates that is that Isaiah has a very real need. He needs for his guilt to be taken away and his sin to be atoned for or covered over. You see, because of his sin, Isaiah is guilty and he cannot enter into the throne room that he sees in this vision. In fact, one commentator suggests that perhaps this is the reason why the thresholds shake to prevent him from entering into that throne room. Same for why the house then fills up with smoke to prevent him from even seeing God, much less approaching him. Sin keeps us from entering into the presence of God now and for eternity. It keeps us from God's presence. And our only hope in that condition is that the guilt of our sin be taken away from us and our sin covered over or atoned for. And in this scene, that's exactly what happens when the burning coal touches Isaiah's lips. The the burning coal represents God's wrath against sin. The burning coal represents the burning fire of God's wrath against sin, his judgment against sin, his determination to purify from sin and to cleanse of sin. The cleansing comes from the altar, and the altar represents the blood of Christ. The altar is where they sacrificed the animals, where the blood of the animals was spilt. And so this represents the blood of Christ and the purifying that is needed comes from that burning coal representing the righteous judgment of God against sin. And so the blood of Christ comes to us from the altar of Calvary and atones for or covers over the sins of all those who trust in Christ alone for rescue. And the wrath of God against sin, how is it displayed? Well, it puts Jesus to death at Calvary in our place, bringing purification of sin for all those who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And note that the seraphim, they would never do this on their own accord. Their only purpose was to serve at the beck and call of the king. They served at his command. And so this is God, this is action on the part of God himself, who upon Isaiah's confession and repentance invades him with grace and mercy and atonement and forgiveness. Isaiah is being told in this vision, and he's telling us as well, that we are guilty sinners who need rescue. And this rescue is nothing that we can bring about ourselves. Left to ourselves, we are undone. We are ruined. But salvation is of God. And God 
who is seated on this heavenly throne in perfect holiness and brilliant glory. He makes a way for the guilt of our sin to be removed and for our sin to be atoned for. The people to whom Isaiah was writing in Judah in this day would have understood the word atonement very well. Yom Kippur was the day of atonement. It was instituted by God in Leviticus chapter 16. Yom Kippur was a ceremony whereby the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies along with two goats. With one of the goats, he laid his hand on the goat's head and he confessed the sins of the nation, symbolizing that the sins were being transferred to this goat and then that goat was led astray into the wilderness to go off. That's where the word scapegoat came from. The other goat had it much worse. The other goat would be sacrificed at the altar. And his blood would be sprinkled over the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing atonement or covering over through a blood sacrifice. And friends, this all pointed to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who stood in our place, who took on our sins at Calvary. He is our scapegoat but he's also the other goat because his blood was shed at calvary as well and that blood that was shed at calvary covers over and atones for all the sins of those who repent and believe on christ for rescue alone and we see our need for a scapegoat and we see our need for atonement our need for a redeemer when we behold our king of glory and so we behold him we behold our king of glory and we are encouraged even in times of uncertainty because he's still on his throne secondly we are undone because we see how unholy we are and we're led to confess and repent of that but then we're reminded of the grace that is made available through the altar of calvary and then fourthly, fourthly and finally, we are sent on a mission. What we find in verses 8 through 13 are not just Isaiah's commissioning, but ours. This is the church's commissioning. Isaiah hears a voice from the Lord saying in verse 8, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Incredibly, Isaiah is given a window into a conversation with the triune God. As the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit discuss among themselves, who will go for us? Whom shall I send? And fresh off his vision of the throne room, and fresh off his vision of the grace that's been extended to him because the burning coal has touched his lips and taken away the guilt of his sin and covered over his sin. Isaiah hears this holy huddle trying to decide whom to send, and he offers here am I, send me. I don't know, even know what the mission is, but I'll go. You see, a true vision of who God is and what he's done for us will compel us to want to serve him and will compel us to want to be sent by him. And Isaiah doesn't even know what the mission is yet. All he knows is God needs someone to go. God's got a mission and he needs someone to go. And Isaiah says, I don't care, whatever it is, I'll go, send me, 
I want to serve you. I see who you are. I see what you've done. I'll go. Send me. Church, I want us to hear the triune God having this conversation even today. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Whom shall I send to Gwinnett County, to Hall County, to Barrow County? Whom shall I send to this neighborhood or this neighborhood? Whom shall I send to that workplace or this workplace? Whom shall I send to China, to Ghana, to Peru, to Indonesia? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And church, if your eyes are on yourself and your little piece of the pie and your comfort and your safety in the here and now, if your eyes are on this world and the cares of this world and your hope is in the leaders of this world, then you will not say, here am I, send me. You will say, somebody else will go. Not me. But if your eyes behold the majesty of the holy king of glory that Isaiah speaks of here, and if your lips have been touched by the burning coal that comes from the altar of Calvary, then before you even know what the mission is, you will say, here I am, Lord. Send me. I don't care what it is. You've got a mission. You've got a need. I am here. I will do it. Send me. Friend, the more that you look at the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the more you will want to serve him with your life. So look at him, church. Look at him and then go. So what kind of mission did God have in mind for Isaiah? Well, to put it lightly, his mission was not going to be a cush ministry, not a ministry that was easy and not even a ministry that was filled with fruitfulness. God did not say to Isaiah, Isaiah, I'm going to tell you to go to Gwinnett County and plant a church, and it's going to be filled with people who love Jesus, and people are going to come to faith every Sunday, and the baptismal waters are going to stir every single week. Isaiah would have loved that if that's what God had said, but that's not what God had in mind for Isaiah. Far from it. Instead, God told him, beginning in verse 9, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. In other words, you're going to preach to a people who will hear, but not understand, who will see, but not perceive. Now, we already know what kind of people Isaiah was sent to prophesy to. We've seen that in the first five chapters. The people of Judah had rebelled against their God. They had turned away from him. They had turned to their own ways. They were a sinful nation, from the wealthy leaders to the common laborer. They had turned against God, and God had already promised that he was sending judgment to them. And so in one sense, we could say, well, of course that they won't hear. Of course they will have hard hearts, because they're blinded by their own sin. And while sin does blind us from truth, and while we do have an enemy who works to blind us from seeing the, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, here we're told that God was going to use Isaiah himself and his preaching ministry to harden their hearts and blind their eyes. And this is what God was going to do. Verse 10 makes this explicit. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy 
and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. You see, God had already determined to judge the people of the southern kingdom of Judah. And he was going to judge them by bringing first the Assyrians and then cleaning house with the Babylonians to attack them, overthrow them, and ultimately to lead them into captivity. And so Isaiah's ministry was going to be one of confirming that they deserve this judgment because they had turned against God. So he's going to preach to them about the holiness and glory of God, but the net effect of of that preaching would be that their hearts would be hardened and it would further confirm that they deserved the judgment that God intended for them. So then Isaiah asks in verse 11, how long, O Lord? So in other words, he, he might be second guessing, like saying, here am I, send me. He maybe wasn't too pumped about this ministry now that it's been described to him. And so he asks, how long must I do this, Lord? The Lord replies in verses 11 and 12, until cities lie waste without inhabitant. And houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes his people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. This is a clear prophecy of the exile of God's people. When the Babylonians finally defeat the southern kingdom of Judah and take her people away, the Lord is telling Isaiah, your preaching ministry that's going to start with you, but it's going to continue with the other prophets, will continue until the exile of my people. But as we've already seen in the book of Isaiah, the Lord's going to save a remnant. Verse 13. He's going to save a remnant of his people. Verse 13. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So God's people will be like a felled tree. Burned by the purifying fires of God's judgment. First the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. But from that tree, from that felled tree, a seed would germinate. A branch would come forward, and the people would return. But that's not all of the story, because we have the New Testament. And when we put on our New Testament lens, which is what we must do, because now we've been told the rest of the story. When we put on our New Testament lens here, we see that Isaiah's prophecy about preaching about the kingdom of God to a people who will hear but not understand, see but not perceive, that this prophecy is fulfilled when Jesus taught in parables. Four different times in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Isaiah 6 is directly quoted from in order to explain why Jesus taught in these strange parables, saying that some to some they would be confused by the parables and turn away while others would be curious and would come to Jesus and he would open their eyes to truth so this whole prophecy is pointing to Jesus in fact we see that explicitly in John chapter 12 go read this on your own time but in John chapter 12 he quotes from these verses from Isaiah chapter 6 and then he says this in verse 41 of that passage Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now in the context of John chapter 12, the he and the his were referring to Jesus. And so church, what that means is that this picture that we have in Isaiah chapter 6 is not just God the Father on the throne, it is Jesus Christ the Lord on the throne. 
It all points to Jesus. The judgment that he speaks of there in verse, verses 11 and 12. Cities laid waste without inhabitant, houses without people, the land being desolate. This is not just referring to the judgment of the exile, but to the judgment that is coming for all those who remain in their sin apart from Christ. The remnant referred to in verse 13 there is not only referring to the Israelites who come back from the exile to Jerusalem, but also to the people of God today, the church of Jesus Christ. Brother, sister, we who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are the remnant of God's people today. And where did we come from? We came from that felled tree in Jerusalem. Notice that at the end of verse 13, the quotations end, which is telling us that Isaiah now is providing commentary about what God had spoken to him. And he says there at the end of verse 13, that the remnant will come from a holy seed and that the holy seed comes from the stump of this felled tree. This is something that we've seen already, this branch that is coming. And it's a theme that Isaiah is going to develop throughout this book. We'll see it even more explicitly in chapter 11. But he's referring to the stump of Jesse. Jesse, of course, was the father of David. And, and David was the greatest king that Israel had ever had. And Isaiah refers to him as the stump of Jesse or the branch of Jesse. And, and that David, King David, was given a promise that one would come from his line, from his seed, who would one day sit on the throne of King David forever, that his would be an everlasting reign. And church, we know that this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So what we have in verses 8 through 13 is, is not only the Lord commissioning Isaiah to preach a message of judgment and hope to the people of his day, but, it, but through our New Testament lens, it is also the Lord commissioning you and I, the church of Jesus Christ, to take the message of the gospel to the people of our day. To some, to some, sadly, it will harden their hearts and it will blind their eyes and it will serve to confirm the judgment that God has reserved. But to others, to the elect remnant, they will respond to the gospel, repenting of their sins and placing their faith in the one who is the holy seed of Jesse's stump. And that holy seed of Jesse's stump is the one sitting on the throne. Now as we think about how to apply a passage of scripture like this, there are a number of applications that we could exhort ourselves to. I could exhort you to be encouraged. Be encouraged because he's still on his throne. No matter what happens in the world around us, be encouraged. I could exhort you to be undone by your own sin, to see your sin, and to confess of your sin and turn from your sin. I could exhort you to be reminded of the grace that is found in Christ. I could exhort you to take up the mantle of the commission that God has given you in the gospel. But the way I see things in this passage, those are simply implications of doing the one thing that this passage truly demands of us, which is to behold the holiness and glory of King Jesus. Because when we see him, when we behold him, 
as Isaiah describes him here. And we realize that this is not just a picture of King Jesus 2,800 years ago. It's a picture of King Jesus today, right now. That our Lord is seated on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe, right now, fills the temple in heaven. And around him are these seraphim. And they are singing to one another. And they sing to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. That song is going on at this moment as we speak. And when we behold the holy king of glory in that sense, then it will only be natural for us to be encouraged in times of uncertainty because we will know that king still on his throne. It will only be natural for us to be undone by our unholiness and our own sin. And we will naturally confess that and turn from that. And we will naturally be reminded that our lips, by God's grace, have been touched by the altar of Calvary from Jesus' own sacrifice. And the, the guilt of our sin has been taken away and our sin has been covered over and atoned for. And when we behold him in all of his glory, that it will only be natural for us to say, here am I, send me. I will go on the mission that you have sent me to my neighbors, to my coworkers, and to the ends of the earth. Those actions naturally flow when we behold the holiness and glory of King Jesus. So let's do that. Let's pray. Father, I find myself so thankful, so very thankful that in your kindness you have preserved this vision that you have given to Isaiah so that we can see you with eyes of faith. The eyes of the flesh, Lord, we confess, they focus on the things around us, the worries, the concerns, the needs the hurts, the hang-ups, the habits. Oh God, would you give us eyes of faith that as we live in the world and we are sent to the world, we're citizens of another land and we have a king who is above all kings and you are reigning above all. Lord, help us to keep that vision in our minds to remind us that you're still in control to remind us that our only hope for salvation comes from you taking the initiative to extend grace to us through Christ. Father, we pray for those in this room. We pray for those in our homes. We pray for those in our neighborhoods and workplaces who don't know you. Father, we pray that the bad news would be clear to them, that they are lost and hopeless apart from Christ, and then the good news that we see in this passage would be clear to them as well. Use us as your people to hold out the hope of the gospel that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life, to achieve a righteousness that we need in order to see you but could never earn in a thousand lifetimes. And then you sent him to the cross to pay the debt, to pay the penalty that we deserve to pay because of our sin. Lord, I pray for that lost person in this room Lord, that you would grant them faith to trust in Jesus and that good truth 
this morning. Not just so that you would clean up their life, but so that you would remake them into a worshiper of you. Because Lord, we know that you deserve their worship. And we are so thankful, Father, that you've remade us. That you have taken the initiative to take the burning coal from the altar of Calvary to touch our lips. That you've removed the guilt of our sin. That you've covered over our sin with the atoning blood of your son Jesus. But now, Lord, you, you ask the same question. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? You've given us a mission. Jesus repeated it. Jesus said he's sending us. So, Father, help us to keep this vision at the forefront of our minds so that we will say yes to you. So that when we see our neighbor, when we see our coworker, we see our friend who so desperately needs the hope of Christ, we will say, here am I, send me. Use me, Lord, to hold out the hope of Jesus Christ to them. God, we love you. Help us to keep this vision and glorify you with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.